3: It has Jordan. Allen shakes free, gets two. Gilmore on... Oh snap oh, oh, oh. lead Toledo artist you get 21
2: 428 to go in the first quarter for the Cow Palace. Here's Barry
3: Hello and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast at com. I am Jason Mann and I am very pleased to join in our continuing Wrestlemania series is uh, Bajan Bain, the author of Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball. Bajan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we're going to chat about uh, some of the highlights of the uh, Celtics and Lakers uh, finals rivalry uh, between 1959 and 1969. They met seven times in the finals with the uh, Celtics winning each time, but some very close calls there, including... three game sevens during that time. We'll talk about some of the uh, the highlights of their rivalry. but first I, I want to talk a little bit about um, Elgin Baylor. Uh, you wrote a uh, you wrote a book about him and um, what made him such so special as a player and how important was he to uh, the Lakers of that decade?
2: Okay, great question. Uh, both great questions in terms of context. Some of the things that I felt and that I found made him special as a player were he is the first player to whom we can trace the style of play that we take for granted now in the sense that he was a one-on-one offensive player from the wing who took his defender or defenders off the dribble. And from the dribble, no matter who's 16 to 18, 20 feet out, ended up somewhere in the lane. And uh, whether that meant improvising, whether it meant changing hands, whether it meant a spin based on how the defender reacted, uh, adjusting the ball, bringing it down, bringing it back up, double clutching, all of those things that we see commonplace now, we can trace to Baylor in terms of anybody seeing them nationally. The other thing that made him important is that when the Lakers were still in Minneapolis, which they were the first time they met the Celtics in an NBA final in uh, 59, as you know, Uh, his style of play and uh, the electrifying nature of his appeal was such that Bob Short decided to move the team to Hollywood and the NBA did not have a
3: presence west of St. Louis before Baylor. And um, you can really say, I mean, the way that um, that Bill Russell was a a defensive pioneer in terms of the style and the effectiveness in which he played defense, Baylor in many ways was a was an offensive pioneer as well.
2: That's correct. They both sort of understood the game in a way that. Obviously, in Russell's sense, it was almost the closest equivalent that the sport has ever had to a goalie or goalkeeper and the way that that controls possessions and also starts fast breaks and allows people to cheat on defense. And in terms of Baylor, the fact that he was able to improvise in the lane, adjust shots, uh, change hands and things of that nature and was so uh, not creative to be flashy, but creative based on what the defense dictated, inspired a generation of the the Gus Johnson's, the Julius Irving's, the... Uh, Later on, the Michael Jordan and the Dominique Wilkins as as players who slash and score and
3: sort of uh, adjust on the fly. And, um, you know, once the Lakers made it to Los Angeles, I mean, Baylor was so instrumental in really making L.A. A um, what you know kind of evolved to become the uh, the basketball capital of the um, NBA and really American basketball.
2: That's correct. Um, I wouldn't. <laughs> Auerbach took offense at that statement at a, at a press conference at the NBA All-Star Game when when Short was president present in '63, or at least I know Fred Schaus, the Laker uh, coach at the time, was. So he took he took offense because they hadn't won a title, and at that time um, UCLA hadn't even won a national title. So I, I would say <laughs> Russell. Russell took a took a jab at that when they were flying back from LA after they had won the uh, deciding game in, I believe the sixty three finals. But I would say, in the sense that it is Baylor that first of all brings the league to Southern California, which is very important in terms of uh, travel and having a second large media capital and, and and just giving it big league status. And also, even though they hadn't they didn't have the hardware to show that the Celtics did. For and never did, but they did make, as you state, seven finals, and then UCLA starts winning. I think you can attribute a lot of what happened in terms of the interest in the game in Southern California that UCLA is the beneficiary of by 64 and 65 on the Goodrich and Erickson teams. And this is before Cinder, When they won the first two titles, a lot of the kids were Southern California high school players. And I think the interest between 61, 63, and 64 uh, attracted a lot of young men to a game that they hadn't been playing, paying that much attention to before Baylor. And that made the high school uh, game in the region stronger.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, what about uh, Jerry West comes along um, a couple years after Baylor, and they are really the, uh, the co-stars of that team. Um, what was their relationship like and how did they sort of deal with um, a, a situation in which they definitely could have become rivals or, you know, the egos could have gotten in a way and, you know, perhaps in, it could have gotten toxic. But, you know, from my understanding, that didn't really happen with, with Baylor and West. They pretty much got along and, and, and had a good relationship.
2: Well, my research showed and interviews showed of, of people who were their contemporaries or teammates such as the Hot Rod Hunleys and people of that nature... Although when West becomes a better player and and more integral to the scoring, there's some professional pride there and things of that nature because obviously there's not quite as many shots. Baylor averaged 38 in 61-62 and 30, well, he averaged averaged 34 in 61-62. I think that was the year where he um, missed 30-odd games to uh, reserve duty. 38, uh, the year before, and then when West becomes a higher score, there's a couple of things that happen. One, Baylor's knees weren't as strong, so it actually helped. Uh, but but obviously there he wasn't as much uh, the, the the lead. Person in the offense. Well, he still was, but it it was like a tandem at that point. So I would say after 63, he becomes a tandem and a scoring duo. And the way that they handled it was Baylor was obviously, as you state, a couple years ahead of him. Baylor was team captain. uh, And Baylor was widely respected not only by West, but around the league. So guys like Russell looked up to him Guy Rogers, Oscar Robertson, the Al Addleses, the Lenny Wilkinses, the Hal Greers because he was sort of garrulous. Uh, He had a sort of a regal air, a lot of journalists describe it as. And West deterred to that the first few seasons. And then when West became more of an offensive threat, because they didn't have a third strong score, and because they were always relatively weak in the post, they complemented each other and it never became something of a professional or ego rivalry.
3: Um, for, uh, for Baylor and Russell, you know, they had a lot of, they they were, you know, Russell considered Baylor a peer and a friend. They would go to movies and dinners together and also, you know, both recognized their importance to the game. Um, they had a lot of parallels as well in terms of, um, activism inside and outside the NBA in terms of, uh, speaking out on, um, social issues they both were really important in terms of um labor rights for uh the players and they both uh baylor being the first but both um uh within a few months of each other um boycotted um nba games or these were um these are preseason games um baylor in charleston west virginia russell later in dallas and then again with the celtics in uh, lexington kentucky um, can you t- tell the story about uh, uh about Baylor in Charleston? Sure. Um, to be fair, the Charleston game
2: was in Jan is in mid January, so he was the first player to boycott a game because of accommodation discrimination during the regular season. Uh, in January '59, when Elgin Baylor was a rookie, uh, as you well know, and some of your listeners may or may not. The NBA used to schedule games, mostly in the regular season, but sometimes, mostly in the preseason, but sometimes during the regular season, in cities where they could take advantage of the appeal of a player on the roster of either team who had played college ball there. The Boston often did it because of Frank Ramsey. They would play in Lexington, not as often during the regular year, but mostly during preseason. The Lakers played in Charleston to take advantage of the fact that Hot Rod Hunley was on the roster, former West Virginia All-American. So when the game was promoted, it was promoted by a group of Charleston business officials. And they put up the resources for the game. They marketed the game. They advertised the game. They, they took the financial burden. When the team arrived, to, to make it, uh, to make it kind of brief here, They were checking in, and at that time, Vern Mickelson was one of the captains, a a gentleman who was a remnant from the Mike-in years. And big blonde guy, 6'7", they're they're at the front desk in Charleston, and Ed Fleming and and Boo Ellis and Baylor are all waiting with with the rest of the guys, Dick Garmaker and Bob Slick-Leonard. And as they're registering, the desk clerk looks at their ethnic makeup and says, you know, they can't all stay here. Well, Short had written the hotel in advance and made it clear that there were four Negroes on the team and there hadn't been any resistance to him when he um, asked if if, if that would cause any complications regarding lodging. So this was a surprise. And so when Mickelson is just getting the names and the number of keys and the room numbers and things like that, this was something that caught everyone off guard. And Baylor was within enough earshot to tell that the desk clerk was having issues. What results that night is that because the four black players have to stay unscheduled in a segregated rooming house, Baylor decided not to play. He thought about it, but something happened also when they went out to eat and they weren't served there. Uh, So he thought about it and decided not to play. Now the game is to market or take advantage of Hunley's appeal. So when they're in the locker room, Huntley looks at him and says, you're not dressing out. And he said, no, Rod, I'm not going to play. And he said, that's really, you know, a tough thing because this is my home crowd and I, I kind of understand, but could you change your mind? And he said, no, I'm not an animal to be let out of a cage. And then the Russell boycotts uh, come later. But the, the, thing, the thing to remind ourselves is that Baylor was a rookie. So he had, he didn't have the standing of a Russell He wasn't a veteran. He didn't have the, the, uh, standing with media. He didn't have standing with the, in the, in the public eye. So he risked that as a rookie.
3: Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and obviously it took a lot of courage to, um, to do that. And, um, what was the relationship between, uh, Baylor and, and Russell? Like, did you find anything interesting about that in your research?
2: Sure. Um, Baylor and Russell, as serious as they were on the court and is, you know, take your heart, uh, sort of uh, foot on the throat, Michael Jordan types uh, or, or predecessors of Michael Jordan in terms of their their will and their attitude and their professionalism. Because the league was still under an unspoken racial quota, they were quite friendly uh, for three or four blacks per team in the late 50s, early 60s by 61 or 62, maybe five on some teams. And because of lodging and things of that nature, the guys drew close. Uh, Russell comes out of college about two years ahead of Baylor, but they're pretty close in age because Baylor actually was born in 34 and so was Russ. So just to give you an example of how genial they were, there's an incident where Russell finds out in the mid sixties that Baylor has, that the Lakers are going to wear these Royal blue blazers when they, when they're on the road, you know, when they're on flights and things like that a team jacket, and they had to decide what shade of blue. And when Russell heard the story, he said, uh, how diplomatic of Mr. Baylor to, uh, decide that it was okay to let them wear this particular shade of blue. So they were, they were big, uh, teasers.
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, and you know from what I've absolutely, Russell had, you know, he loved pranks. He had a great sense of humor and and Baylor was it was was very like was chatty and was, you know, kind of constantly um, or you know or consistently was just you know, gregarious and engaging and, um, and and that kind of thing. Um, so going to uh, going to some of the highlights of their um, of the finals in which they they, they faced off. Um, the 59 finals were, uh, a sweep by the Celtics. So not a whole lot uh, going on there, but, um, but the fact that, you know, Baylor as a rookie was able to take this team to, uh, the finals, uh, year in which he won rookie of the year, finished, uh, top 10 in scoring, rebounding and assists, and then also managed 55 points in a game, which was the, the, the third highest total of all time at, the, at that point in the league. Um, It says a lot about him with, you know, a a couple of younger players who would kind of stick around for a few years, but but really mostly um, aging veterans. Mickelson, who had, um, you know, been with the original Minneapolis Lakers dynasty and then guys like, you know, Dick, Dick Garmaker and Larry Faust, who, you know, were many time all stars, but were, you know, at the end of their career.
2: That's right. In in that series, they were swept. Um, The first two games were in Boston. The first game was close, it was 118-115. The deciding game was relatively close, 118-113, but the Celtics were uh, a veteran club in a good way in the sense that Cousy was not on his last legs, neither was Sharman, Heintzen was only in his third year, Russell was only in his third year. Uh, and Russell only played half of his first year because of the Olympics. So they were fresh. So they had a good mix of young youth and veteran. The Lakers had Baylor and Warren veterans. Uh, so that wasn't a very balanced series in the sense that the Minneapolis got to that finals, despite having a losing record during the regular season. Mm mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, they yeah 33 and 39 um they managed to uh, upset the uh, the Hawks who had uh were in the midst of four out of five finals and would really be a fierce rival for the Lakers for uh toward the end of the 50s and most of the uh, 60s um not really that remembered of a um of a rivalry now but they absolutely went back and forth a lot with the Hawks getting the better for the most part of those early years and then the Lakers breaking through and having the better of those later years. That's
2: right. The, uh, the Lakers and the Hawks for most of the very late 50s and very early 60s till about 63 almost met annually in the Western Finals. And when they did, the Hawks still had the triumvirate of Pettit, Hagan and uh, Lavelle. And, and Hagan and Baylor went at it because they were both, even by, by the standards of those times, undersized forwards. Hagen was only about 6-4. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah. He was about Frank Ramsey size. So they would they would guard each other for the most part. They were both physical. They were both sort of gliders. Hagan had that running hook no one could block and um I interviewed Hagen for my uh, Baylor biography and he says that he had good games against Elgin and he was as quick as Elgin uh, that Elgin was the first really, really dynamic score and the, and the first really the kind of person that you were tempted to double team and things of that nature. But because they were about the same size, roughly the same age, although uh, Hagan was not on the Kentucky team that Baylor played in the NCAA Finals, it w- it was that Hawk team was a very high scoring, uh, three all-star savvy veteran team in one of the most uh, still segregated NBA markets. So there was a lot going on socially and in terms of rivalry when they played one another. Because as you know, uh, in in the very late fifties, they were one of the they were the only team to take a championship off the Russell Celtics.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so moving on to uh, sixty two, uh, the Lakers, of course, are in are in Los Angeles now. Um, Jerry West has joined the team and is in his. Um, in his second season this is the season that baylor only plays 48 games because of military service but uh he has just an extraordinary scoring average um they're now coached by uh, fred shouse who was a west uh, college coach um this one goes uh, seven games um baylor ends up scoring 65 points in game five which is a, a lakers win um And Russell has 189 rebounds in this series, which is the most in a seven game series. He averages uh, 27 a game. Uh, And then the 62 final game, the Celtics win 110 to 107 in overtime. The second game, seven in the finals to go into overtime. Um, Most famously, uh, Frank Selvey um, has a wide open jump shot with uh, five seconds left, but, uh, but, but he misses and uh, the, uh, the Celtics are able to um, grab it in overtime thanks to Sam Jones um, hitting some key shots in overtime. Uh, Russell had 30 points and uh, 40 rebounds. Um, really about as close as they could possibly get, and, and this would be the, the the first instance of you just the Lakers just coming so incredibly close to beating the Celtics and not being able to pull it off.
2: Yes, that's the first year where West – is really an all-star caliber player. So it's becoming more of a balanced team. The obvious glaring deficiency would be having a Ray Felix uh, in the pivot versus a Russell. Not so much that you're giving up away that much in points, but in the other two important aspects of the game, defense and rebounding. And even Russell's passing ability and ability to get on the break. Felix wasn't a bad player. It's just that, this was the first of many finals when the the discrepancy in the, in the uh, under the basket was so evident when the teams appeared so balanced on paper. Um, first game, Boston won uh, in Boston. Less than eight thousand people turned out. Uh, Lakers won game two in Boston. It, 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 it's it's a high scoring series. As you can tell by the number of rebounds and, and points that Russell had, obviously the Baylor game where he has what is still an NBA finals record. Uh, even, even, uh, after the Jordan years, is still a, a, finals record, a lot of possessions. Uh, it's really, if you look at it, because Kuzi is still there, you still have prime Heinzen You still have prime Casey Jones, uh, A burgeoning West, not quite the West of the mid '60s, but but a high-scoring, a fast West, and a West that many fans didn't see, or even seeing highlights on YouTube, is the West in the early '60s was actually a person that could elevate. You know, if he got if he got one on a breakaway, and he was prone to getting uh, his share of steals, uh, he would dunk it, Uh, and he had he had the long arms. He had played forward at West Virginia, so. To to see Weston a box score now at six three it's a little deceptive because he was really an athletic uh, player mixed it up on defense a lot mm-hmm. so so that's a really athletic sort of a new wave uh, finals in the sense that you got these guys like uh, Sanders and Russell and. Uh, Casey Jones, who was drafted by the Rams and Sam Jones, who was supposed to be the fastest player afoot in the league. Russell, who uh, could have high jumped in the 56 Olympics, Baylor uh, West going against each other, uh, hammer and tong for seven games.
3: Yeah. Um, so, uh, so moving on to 63, they would, they would face off again the next year and um uh they are they're fairly similar teams although John Havlicek is a uh, rookie for the Celtics and this is Koozie's last season um the the Lakers added uh, Dick Barnett who had uh, came after a year in the uh, ABL um along with uh, Leroy Ellis and Gene Wiley um actually this is probably a pretty good time to talk about um just in general, kind of the supporting cast that um, Baylor and West had in the '60s, because it definitely you know there there were some people who you know who stuck around. Um, Tom Hawkins was well, he, he was there and then left him and then came back. Um, you know, Rudy, Russo, Rudy LaRusso was there for a few seasons. Who were kind of some of the key guys who really were um, you know the, the the good role players that. Um, you know, that that people might not know about other, uh, obviously, you know, uh, behind, um, behind West and Baylor?
2: Well, that's a very good question because it, it, it gives fans who, you know, I mean, I wasn't around, of course, it gives fans a feel for how well matched they were or how poorly matched they might've been. And you say well or poorly, a lot of years they did go seven games, despite the fact that Russell is, is in the post. Uh, Rudy LaRusso was a, was an all American from Dartmouth. He was, Six seven ish but he had good jump shooting range from the baseline, rugged rebounder, fans that are a little young, a little younger that obviously couldn't have seen this series, but maybe if a fan was around in the early 70s or mid-70s and saw Dave DeBuscher, I would say there's a little bit of uh, uh, LaRusso and DeBuscher's game. There, there's some later analogs that I could provide of people who played in the 80s or, or the 90s. So that's a good strong forward and, and a good sort of uh, juxtaposition for a Heintzen, uh in terms of a duel. And heinzen didn't have a lot of wind, as, as you well know, in terms of just going to be able to go 30, 28 minutes at a time. The uh, addition of, of a Barnett sort of takes the onus off West a little bit because it gives it gives them a good uh, balanced backcourt of whom both could score. Both could take you off the dribble. Dick Barnett was a left-handed jump shooter, unusual jump shot in terms of his style, of course, with the leg kick. But a good defender, and that helped West a lot. Adding Gene Wiley and Leroy Ellis in the uh, 62-63 draft was pivotal because they were young big men. They were younger than Russell. They could both run. Wiley was a leaper. He could block shots. Ellis had a nice jump shot. He was also very fast. He had been a first-team All-American St. John's. So that gives them a little bit more depth in the post, uh, but they're rookies facing Russell, and then you have, uh, you know, you have Frank Selby, who's a who's a little bit along in the tooth by that stage, as as was Kuzey. So, I would say the key element is that Barnett and Larusso, while they both had uh, double-digit years that they played in the NBA and were very strong scorers up in the teens per year, and then some years Barnett when he played enough minutes with average in the low 20s, Heintzen, Kuzi, and eventually Havlicek are all Hall of Famers. And that, and that's a major difference. Of course, Havlicek is a rookie in the 63 finals, so he doesn't play as much, but a very athletic rookie.
3: Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, he was hurt for a few games uh, in the series, although um, it closed it out and played pretty well. Uh, closing it out. Um, now West had been injured for about seven weeks um, at the close of the season, so he was back during the playoffs. But the team didn't necessarily um, hadn't worked out all the kinks. In fact, um, both uh, division series went seven games. The Celtics beat the Royals, and the Lakers beat the Hawks. Um, of course, the Lakers and Hawks commonly had seven game series, um, and the Celtics won a lot of seven game series in the Eastern Division Finals. So that was the the peak for the Royals um, that year um right. five uh, jerry,
2: jerry lucas was probably a rookie uh,
3: Yeah, i think you're right yes
2: if, if, he, if he wasn't still with the pipers he he may not have even been there yet um
3: uh, yeah i i think the, team, the abl was done by then but yeah oh that's right
2: yeah the teams actually played nine times during the regular season in 63 and 62 63 and the lakers won five out of the nine to give you a sense of the balance but then russell has this other level that he goes to in the finals
3: yeah absolutely yeah um and, uh, this was a very, by the way, I, uh, Jerry Lucas, he, his first year was 64. So he was, he was there the next year. Um, okay, he was limbo, yeah. Yeah. Um, but obviously Oscar and Jack Twyman, you know, um, uh, strong teams there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, um, so, so, if I so would... they were
2: both. so they were both, you know,
3: exhausted coming in. I mean, exactly. That, yes.
2: Th- there's no charter travel back then.
3: No, there's there definitely is not. So, and yeah, some of those, some of those, uh, you know, and some of the um amount of time between games was brutal as well i mean you know there were you know back to back to backs and all that sort of stuff and the travel is harder and you know so many things that we kind of uh, you know i mean the schedule today is is tough in many respects but so many things that are probably taken for granted today um are uh are difficult but even though the celtics won this game in six five of the six games were very close including the uh the clincher in game six uh in game five, the uh, Lakers were down three games to one at this point. Um, but Heinzen is ejected. Kuzi fouls out with only 12 points. And Baylor has 43 and West is 32 as the Lakers win 126-119. Um, in game seven, or excuse me, in game six, um, Havlicek is able to, he scores 11 straight during uh, one first half squ- stretch. Boston's up um they're up pretty good late uh, up with, uh, by nine with 11 minutes left, but Cousy injures his ankle, uh, doesn't return until the five minute mark. And then by then the Lakers cut the lead to a single point. Um, mm-hmm. and then, um, uh, the, the Celtics are holding on, but uh, a steals stole a Jerry West pass to really Russo driving and scoring. And from there, basically Cousy tries to work the clock dribbling out the uh, last seconds and, uh, Ending his career by throwing the ball uh, high into the air, um, a, a very tremendous series, but another um, a, a, another in a series of uh, close but great wins by the Celtics.
2: Yes, that's the second heartbreaking loss of the what we now can look back at retro, retrospect as games game seven or close series heartbreaking losses. Now it's starting to frustrate the highly competitive West and the highly competitive Baylor. Uh, obviously Shouse. When Shouse is asked about it, he always points to Russell. Russell is, of course, the major difference, although there are other differences. Kuzi um, at that point is about 35. Um, but there's, there's so many momentum switches. The Lakers at that point, if we just put ourselves in real time, are hoping that Wiley and or Ellis will mature enough to at least give Russell a run for his money as the Celtics get older, and that Baylor and West, obviously with West being uh, Baylor's junior, will still provide a 30 to 25 point each uh, a game scoring punch should they ever meet again. Yeah.
3: And, and it's it's funny in retrospect because already the talk of, oh, maybe the Celtics are too old is uh, is coming along. And and granted, you know, Kuzi was – Uh, toward the end here um and and was was important and was you know and and was considered um, a um you know major part of the team although what even after he left they you know they got even better and um and russell was still you know he was in his late 20s but he wasn't quite old yet um and they you got an infusion of youth with havichuk so they were getting older but it's funny that of it's, course it's
2: it's 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 sort of it's sort of misleading though because when Koozie and Sharman started from fifty seven to sixty one ish they they had the Jones boys. Right, exactly. So it's very misleading because you, you have two Hall of Famers Sam and Casey Jones sort of biding their time behind Koozie and Sharman. And I know Sharman's not there in 63 but the larger point is that you know you sort of had Sam <laughs> all along and, and you got Casey
3: Yeah, right. I mean, they were they were just so great at um, I mean, obviously, in in the talent that they chose and in in figuring out that that whole, you know, mentor um, relationship with the older players of, you know, kind of, um, you know, Showing the younger players along, or at least giving them kind of an uh, a, an archetype to play, and then mm-hmm. you know the younger players filling those roles and adjusting things as needed. But um, but still, you know, just it's amazing how well oiled machine the Celtics were, and I guess that's how you win eleven titles in thirteen years. Yeah, you,
2: it, I don't know if they would have stayed had there been free agency, whether Havlicek would wait for a Heinson to get older or whether Sam would wait for a Sharman or Kuzi to get older. It may be if you're winning rings every year. But then again, are you winning rings every year if there's free agency?
3: Yeah, and a, and a, a bigger, uh, you know, a lot, lot more teams and a lot more playoff rounds to get through. And, yeah, mm-hmm. the, obviously it's a, a different landscape. Um, yeah. So moving on to uh, 65, um, the, th- this is a tough one for the Lakers because they lose Baylor. Uh, he, pl- he plays five minutes in game one of the division finals, a uh, series against the uh, bullets and, um, suffers a, uh, a serious knee injury. Basically, uh, he says his, he said, he went for up for a shot and my knee exploded. I could hear a crack and a pop and everything else. And his kneecap is almost a uh, split and, uh, extremely serious injury really remarkable that he came back from it at all and came back from it a definitely a lessened player, but still an effective player for, you know, a number of years after this.
2: That's correct. Uh, the 65 66 finals were relatively anticlimactic because of a hobbling Baylor, although he was able to help them get into the finals again, which was rather surprising because Baltimore had a strong young team. Um, but, again, that's the series where he's hurt. The They still have Barnett. So the the thing about Barnett is if Baylor's out or if Baylor is 65%, Barnett can take more shots and provide some additional scoring punch. Uh, but without the weapon that Baylor had been two or three years earlier, it allows the Celtics to play them differently.
3: Mm-hmm. Um So, uh,
2: West Boston won the opener by, by 32 points, just to give you a feel for how different.
3: Yes, absolutely. Uh, West was able to get, uh, 45 in game two, but Boston still won that one. It was a closer margin, 129, 123. Uh, the Lakers did win game three. Uh, West had 43 points and Leroy Ellis had 29 points. Uh, they won that one pretty handily, um, but uh, they they couldn't match up with them in, in game five was a pretty dominant uh, Celtics win, 129-96. The Celtics outscored the Lakers 72-48 in the second half, and um, Boston ran off 20 unanswered points. The Lakers went scoreless for five minutes, and in one stretch, West missed 14 out of uh, 15 shots. So just a, uh, you know, what... Um, Lakers clearly didn't have enough in uh, that series. And that was probably, you know, that, that may have been the peak um, Celtics team in terms of how they performed in the um, regular season. And they, you know, they, they beat a really tough um, Sixers team who had just added Walt Chamberlain in seven games. That, that was one of the, that was the really first tough um, 76ers series that, of course, they would deal with in the Eastern Conference for the next few years.
2: That's correct. That's the Havlicek stole the ball series yes. in which although the Celtics, you know, that you know, the Russell hit the guy wire uh, before the timeout uh, trying to inbound ball a strong physical team with Luke Jackson and Greer and Walker and those guys. Um the the thing about that that whole playoff run uh, because of what happened to Baylor West had to score more, just just because of just to keep them alive. So from the Baltimore series throughout, he averaged forty point six points through the Celtics series. So he's able to turn it on, but it just took a lot out of him uh, because he also has had a lot of um, defensive responsibilities with the best defensive guard on the opposite side. And although Barnett helped, uh, it just shows you at that point how advanced West was becoming in his career that he could take it up to that level and average for almost 41 points a game throughout the entire postseason.
3: Yeah. And he's a guy who, uh, you know, West throughout his career, just, you know, uh, frequently uh, battled um, various ailments. I mean, broke his nose. I, you know, I think a, a half a dozen or more times um, just continuously would um you know, battle through these ailments and still obviously be you know uh, uh, effective in the vast majority of situations.
2: Yeah, one of the best play, uh, clutch players in the history of the league. Certainly, one of the best finals uh, players. Maybe top two, if not, uh, I mean, at least arguably top three finals players in the history of the league. Sure. Well, that When you say finals players, you can't just you can't just account for offense because you have to put Russell in there because you're always thinking West Jordan, West Jordan, West Jordan. But What about somebody who can control a seven game series without having the ball in his hands, which is Russell.
3: Yeah, that, right. That is, and obviously the, uh, the winning record is pretty hard to argue with uh, as well, you know, just being in so many of them and, and, and winning every time in, in close situations. I mean, that's, uh, you know, like I said, we've talked a lot about about how what Russell did is is a little bit harder to measure than what other players do, just because some of those things don't necessarily show up in the stat sheet. But um, and, and you know, we don't we we have footage somewhat, but we don't have the you know the 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 full account of every single game and everything that he did. But still, uh, we know enough to know that he uh, he he meant a lot, and certainly in that conversation.
2: Well, we have to take your hat off to Russell. I you know I wrote a piece for Slam Online once, and I said. Here's a man who perfected a craft for which there was no financial or statistical reward because they didn't log that statistic until 1973, four years after he retired. How many people go out and perfect something and take pride in it and know how pivotal it is to the outcome of the game that's not going to show up in the box score? His, his, the skill for which he's known for, people didn't even count from 1957 to 1969. Yeah. So that shows you that he was blocking shots because blocking shots changes the, the the tempo, the outcome, the intimidation, the thinking of the shooter in the game. He wasn't blocking shots because, oh, I'm going to lead the league in block shots this year, or I'm going to lead the league in uh, finishing on the break, or I'm going to lead the league in uh, guys who make an attempt to make a shot, but I don't actually block the shot, but I change the shot. People weren't counting those things. I don't even really think they were counting defensive rebounds.
3: Yeah. That's, um, that's genius. Right. Absolutely. And um, the, the fact that he, um, you know, had a coach uh, in Red Arbuck who, you know, wasn't worried about his stats and, and value – didn't maybe couldn't even quite under, always understand what he did why why he was so effective but understood that you know he what he was contributing to winning basketball and you know and and not worrying about the scoring totals and just you know understanding um that you know he was playing to win and that he was effective in winning and um you know the, the fact that they had such um you know remarkable relationship and trust in each other and um and our back was kind of contrary to his gruff image, was actually very collaborative uh, with the players and sought, sought mm-hmm. their ideas and treated them like adults. in um, I mean, you know, the, the Lakers were actually a pretty well-run organization during the time. I mean, they, you know, they had some ownership mm-hmm. changes and they had, you know, they had coaching changes and so forth. And they had, you know, they definitely had some players come in and out. But, I mean, just the the fact that the Celtics just had that stability and had um, just such a consistent um, program that, that worked so well. I mean, they, they were just, you know, head and shoulders above everyone, um, not just in players, but in terms of um, just kind of creating that culture.
2: Yes. They had, a, they had an attitude when they walked onto the floor, they warmed up. If, if you're Oscar and the Royals on the other end or Pettit and the Hawks or Baylor and the, and the Lakers, even though these are the best players in the world, They've already got the championships. Havlicek's got his rings from Ohio State. Russell has his from San Francisco. Uh, Ramsey has won, and Casey has won at San Francisco. And they've got they've got Arbach who's going to light the cigar. And they've got this attitude. They're like the clean cut Raiders. They they make you mad. They make you want to defeat them. But they've got these winners who are cocky. But not cocky in the way that we associate with with sort of the uh, the neg- the renegade or, or rebel teams in, in pro sports, but more of a sort of an all American cocky, maybe more uh, analogous to the Yankees of the fifties and sixties. And the psychological the barrier of beating them, especially knowing that they've got the mental the mental champion Russell, was was something in the way that our back picked those players, because you can't see what Havlicek really is in college. You can kind of see what Russell is in college, but most general managers wouldn't have appreciated Russell in college because scoring was such a big deal.
3: Yeah. And it's hard to see what's I mean, obviously college is televised that much. And, you know, you know, you, you, Russell Russ, our back had I think seen Russell once um, before he uh, drafted him and um and a lot of these times you, you weren't able to see guys. You had to rely, of course, on, um, you know, word of mouth or people that you trusted in, in scouting and, and so forth. Just, just a completely different, uh, changed uh, situation. That's right. Uh, so uh, the 66 finals, the uh, Celtics win uh, four games to three. This is uh, our buck's final series as coach. Um, the uh, Lakers won uh, game one in overtime, um, 133 129. It was in Boston. West had 41, Baylor had 36. Baylor uh, recovered from the knee injury, as we mentioned, was uh, you know, was was no longer, you know, West was clearly the number one option after that, but was still very important to the uh, to the team and you know, could put up some big scoring performances, not, not quite as consistently, but um. Again, just remarkable that he dealt with so much pain, um, recovering from that knee injury and powering through that pain. And, you know, it was a sort of a question as to whether he was really going to ever be able to play and, and to power through that and to play, you know, pretty effectively is is quite remarkable.
2: Yeah, he went through the psychological uh, something himself in 63, mostly 64. Obviously, when he hurts it against the, the bullets, uh, 65, 66 of how hard can I go and test it without risking being sidelined again? And with the style of play of him being a floater and a glider, a guy that shot a lot of runners, twisting in midair, I I just can't imagine having to adapt and having to tweak your game when it's predicated on explosiveness and still be effective and be a serviceable. I don't want to say serviceable because it makes it sound sort of mediocre, but to be a dependable player for four to five more years, uh, especially after the surgery to the second knee um, and the opponents knew it too. So there were, there was different ways that they could defense you after that. And, but his leadership, his ability to still time rebounds, the fact that he was still a, a very efficient and uh visionary passer made him a valuable player um even when he didn't have the lift that he had in the
3: early 60s. Mm-hmm. And uh the Lakers had added uh, Bob Boozer and Gail Goodrich uh this year and um so, so so some of that that cast was um rotating. Um Don Nelson went over to the Celtics and ended up uh, being a key player for the uh, uh for the Celtics um starting with 66 um game before game two Auerbach announced that uh, Russell would be the next head coach of course becoming the uh first um uh, black coach in professional sports history uh the Celtics then won the next three games of the series but the 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 final four games of the series were all pretty close um uh Fred Strauss actually put uh, Gail Goodrich in the starting lineup and moved uh, West over to forward, which kind of helped the uh, Lakers uh, win in uh, games uh, five and six. So it's, uh, so it's, it's all tied three, three. And then the final game, another, another very close game, but unfortunately a, um, for for the Lakers, another uh, close outcome is 95, 93. Uh, Russell had 25 points and 32 rebounds in this game. Sam Jones at 22 points. Uh, West had 36 while Baylor struggled in the game at 19 points, but on 6 of 22 uh, shooting. Um, an- another instance of the uh, Celtics taking a big lead, but the Lakers um, coming back, They the lead was down to 6 points with 20 seconds left. Um, Red actually lit the... Uh, victory cigar, but there were some, um, untimely turnovers for the Celtics and the Lakers cut the lead to 95, 93 with, uh, four, uh, seconds left. Um, and, um, by this time, the, uh, the, the fans kind of got a little bit crazy and were, you know, rushing the court and, um, there was uh kind of, kind of mayhem. Eventually, uh, Casey Jones got the inbounds pass to Havlicek, and he dribbled out the championship, dribbled out the clock for the championship, but, um, I, I, I another crazy scene not not quite the the, the one chemo but another uh definitely um heartbreaking situation for uh the Lakers again
2: that's right uh, in that game uh Baylor Baylor actually average managed to average and we say this because of his legs managed to average 27 points and 14 rebounds in that finals but you know there again there's good runs and bad runs and uh West had a two for nine shooting run in that in that uh deciding game. That was another game where Freddie Schaus experimented with a uh small ball lineup of, of the three guards uh to supposedly exploit the quickness and and sort of um take advantage of Sam and k c being elder the um The other things about that game it's very uh significant that you noted that back in those days, the fans could basically stand. If you see footage of those things when, you know, the clock is being dribbled out in that game or in the 63, uh, uh, 62 final, you could pretty much stand where the parquet floor ended in that arena, um, and ring the court almost like you would for a summer league game. So it was dangerous. Things got thrown uh, when the visiting team, uh, You know, you could hear everything Uh, when you when the ball went out of play, it was dangerous for the players because the fans were that close, as were the uh, camera staff. So it's a little uh, it's it's a window into a different NBA than we have now in terms of just the configuration of how the game is viewed and the interaction between fan and player Uh, very almost sort of uh, a remnant of the 50s almost uh so that so that's kind of the atmosphere that that game was played in and it's 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 kind of our back took advantage of the effect that it would have on media and on the lakers and on the celtics and on russell by naming russell his successor during the series and uh that's when the three game uh, Boston winning streak started, is when Russell was named the next coach. Mm-hmm. Because he had announced uh, in the 65 66 preseason that that was going to be his um, final year. But he asked a few people. He asked Kuzi, who was happy co- coaching Boston College. He asked a couple, he asked Carl Braun. He asked a few people. None of them were interested. <laughs> It's not like now, if you're a championship team, everybody would be interested. Guys were car dealers or insurance men. They weren't interested. And um, yeah,
3: and and
2: maybe being being a barrier breaker and and breaking that 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 racial barrier seemed like it, it. It. it just changed the tenure of the series. Not, not that the Lakers probably would have won anyway, but it's, it's interesting the timing of that.
3: Yeah. And definitely, uh, you know, Fred Charles wasn't really thought that he was upset by that thinking it sort of stole their thunder. And, you know, um, he, he was not a big fan of Red I I guess you kind of get through uh, over the years. And, and frankly, I guess when you lose that much to uh, one guy, you're going to get frustrated by him, but, Um, yeah, thinking about those atmospheres, I mean, it's pretty crazy how, um, I mean, those environments could be really intimidating and could be really, um, you know, for, for players to a certain extent and for refs too. Um, I mean, there definitely were some, um, home court advantage was an even greater quality in the fifties and sixties than it is today um, in terms of, you know, the usual result. Um, And a lot of that I'm sure came from just um, psychological factor of fans uh, being able to actually be intimidating in um, whether it was implied threats or whether it was actually like, you know, throwing things um, in there. Those are difficult environments to play in and that can have a, you know, a a psychological effect on, uh, on what you're trying to do in there.
2: Yeah, I would, I would, I would say that was a vestige of the NBA's sort of minor league-ish status before yes. Chamberlain, Robertson, Baylor, uh, Pettit was already in the league, but it, it was sort of, you know, the still not showing the games until tape delay and finals games not being on national television and uh, weird broadcast teams that you see back in those days of like, why is this guy in the booth and broadcast strikes and. Uh, I think Chet Forty of ABC had to do one game because there was a broadcaster strike, so he had to call the game, and he was a producer. Right, so it, yeah.
3: Still,
2: still struggling to, to, to catch up with uh, the NFL and Major League Baseball. Sure. And the, the, the status, the, the Major League status that they had was a credit to the fact that they had Chamberlain, Robertson, West, Baylor, and Russell. Not so much the travel or the pay or the union rights or
3: the um, the
2: fan behavior.
3: Yeah. And and they'd taken strides in those areas, but yes, it was definitely still, uh, it's shocking to see today. Um, And, and certainly, um, you know, on the scale of things, it was still uh, closer to the minor leagues than maybe we would like to think sometimes. Yep. So 1968 finals, uh, the Celtics win four games to two. Um, the uh, actually, the Lakers had a, a little bit of an easier time getting through the uh, playoffs. They beat the Bulls four to one, and they swept the Warriors. Uh, oh, that was a, those games were all pretty close, um, but they were able to sweep that series. the uh, The Celtics beat the Pistons um, in the first round, and then uh, took the Seventy Sixers again to uh, to seven. This was a year after the Sixers had beaten the uh, Celtics to uh, end the uh, to end the eight uh, eight year title streak. Um, That's right. The Boston,
2: too, the Boston two the Boston two old year.
3: Yes. Yes. Um and uh Russell was in his second season as player coach. Um the Lakers had a new coach in um uh, Butch Van bredikoff and uh he was sort of a kind of a salt of the earth uh gruff personality but with very uh um you know, would, would, would be honest, maybe to a fault as, uh, I think Jerry West, uh, put it, um, that, uh, you can't really treat player professional players the way that, um, uh, Van Predlikoff treated people. And that, you know, would lead to, uh, big issues in the, uh, in the next season. But, um, the Lakers started off a little bit slow, but they actually went 38 and nine, um, in the, uh, in the final, uh, half of the season or so. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, um, the series was, um, I, there are fewer close games than there generally were in the, uh, in the Celtics Lakers series. In, um, in game five, um, West, uh, he, he suffered an ankle injury in game four. Uh, he came back though and scored 35 points. Um, the, uh, the Celtics jumped to a big lead, but, uh, the Lakers came back to, uh, tie the score at one away to peace. Um, and the Lakers were down by four with less than a minute to play. West stole the ball and found Baylor down court for a layup. Uh, they tied it when, um, when Archie Clark, uh, he uh, got another steal and West scored. But uh, in overtime, Russell blocked a, a Baylor shot and uh, Don Nelson hit a late free throw to give Boston a 120-117 uh, win and a, a series lead. Uh, game six didn't, uh, was more, was more of a blowout. 124, uh, 109, the Celtics won Havlicek at 40 points and, um, Russell moved, uh, Sam Jones to forward where he, um, posted Goodrich up and, uh, forced, uh, Van Bredelikoff to go with a taller, slower lineup. So this was an example of Russell, um, again, in his second year as player coach, um, showing some, uh, chops as he gained more experience as a coach.
2: That's right. Uh, that's an interesting series. It's, it's not as well uh, recounted in the lore as some of the other ones that we've that we've uh, talked about and probably not the last one that we'll talk about uh, in terms of the folklore. But it's important in the sense of, as you said, there's a, there's the coaching change, the first of a couple. Uh, there'll be a player change the next year. And um, it's Van Bredekoff coming from coaching at Princeton. Jack Kent Cook sees a Sports Illustrated magazine cover with two Princeton players on the cover uh, and asks who their coach is. And the, someone says, well, their coach is this guy named Butch Van Bredikoff, And he hires him. Turns out he had taken uh, Princeton to the final four with Bill Bradley and was seen as sort of a rah-rah guy by the, uh, by the professional players. At this point, In the rivalry, it's really on West's shoulders to sort of try to keep the series competitive. And uh, it's Russell's charge to become sort of uh, Arbok 2.0 in trying to psych out the opponent.
3: Yeah, and he really and he was able to um, you, you know really really meet that challenge. And um, I love the the quote from Russell after the uh, series is done. Um, the, uh, the the reporter asked him what he what he had left to accomplish, and he said, "Well, I don't know because I never had a goal to tell you the truth. It's been a long time since I tried to prove anything to anybody. I know who I am." Which is wh- whether he feels that way or not. That's definitely a a, a standout Bill Russell thing to say.
2: Yeah, and and the thing is, Russell had a lot of respect for Baylor and West. Yes. Not only because they were annual finals rivals, but because they didn't, you know, they never took a playoff. They never mailed it in. They were both injury prone. Well, not, I would say West wasn't necessarily injury prone. West did a lot of diving for loose balls and things like that that led to facial injuries. Whereas Baylor's injuries were leg injuries, which is your career if you're you're a, uh, a floater. So there are different types of injuries. West was always lionized in the press for his injuries and for playing through them because you could see his face as like a football player, the yeah. way he looked. Baylor was not as lionized for playing playing through his, um, which is a little bit unfair yeah. and, and probably speaks to a little bit about where the society was in terms of white athletic heroes and black athletic heroes because West was treated like the, the hobbling Mickey Mantle type but it was Baylor who had the kind of injuries that Mantle had, which were knee injuries. Sure. Um, it's not to say that the journalists didn't say that he was heroic, but they always said West was heroic because yeah. of all the, because I guess you could quote and always use in your column, the number of broken noses. And that was just an easy, uh, easy copy.
3: Yeah.
2: So Russell really, really, really respected those guys. Uh, I mean, because those were, those were fights and, Again, back to this whole thing about getting out of the Eastern Division. I mean, Russell is beating Chamberlain in the East Eastern Finals most of these years. So, it's it's really in an eleven-team league, a nine-team league, a thirteen-team league. It, it's really something that you have to think about that in a way that we don't now about series in which you know all your opponent's pet moves, you know all the coaches mindset and strategies and idiosyncrasies and tricks, the refs, the fans, it's a very insular league. You talked about guys hanging out, especially among the black players, because there's still sort of unspoken quotas about how many blacks to have per team. And it's it's almost like a high school league in the sense of the familiarity.
3: Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, there's still um you know up through 67 there's 9 10 teams in the league. Expansion's about to really blow that up, but um yeah, I mean there there is um you would play these teams so many times, you would get to know them so well. The familiarity was there. Uh the, the it also helped that there was much more roster stability. So, um you know, these che- these teams aren't changing their identity necessarily as quickly as um you know as we might see today i mean you know there, there were certainly i mean there were coaching changes a lot and and certainly there was player movement but but it, it definitely uh, was a completely different thing um at this point i mean teams could keep players basically as long as they wanted to so and obviously the celtics um you know got the same system and the same crew it obviously changed with age but um you know you you, you could kind of you account what the celtics were doing you had a hard time stopping it cause they were so good, but, um, but you obviously knew what they were doing. So, um. well, they had,
2: they had, they had replaceable parts. They they would have this part of the small, they would have this part of the strong forward. And first it was Luskatov. And then later it's, you know, someone else. And then it becomes, you know, in latter years, you know, Bailey Howell sort of fills that role. Then Steve Kaberski, then Silas, then McHale. And they have sort of this stopper at, at, at guard, you know, it's, it's DJ. But before DJ, it's Don Chaney. But before Don Chaney, it's Casey Jones. But before him, it's Frank Ramsey. And then Havlicek can sort of play Swiss knife. He can he can guard a forward air guard. Yeah. You have you know the center who can play defense. It could be Parrish, or it could be Cowens, or it could be Russell. I'm not saying that their talents are equal, but they sort of have these uh, <laughs> These, these movable parts, sort of like a, a John Thompson-Georgetown team. That's probably where Thompson got it from since he was Russell's backup. And in that league, as you said, it's always going to be Robinson, Robertson, Twyman, Lucas. It's always going to be West, Baylor. The difference with the Lakers is they had Boozer, then they let him go. That's like a 16, 17-point score who can add extra punch to supplement Baylor and West, and Baylor always felt it was a mistake letting him go to New York. They had Nelson, and they let him go. Baylor always felt letting Nelson go was a mistake. When you take a guy, Boozer didn't play for Boston, but when you take a guy like Nelson and you plug him into a Celtics team that's already got multiple championships and the role is lessened and he's a role player and he's making these key shots, but everybody else is double teamed and he's getting these open shots. It's a big difference than when, than when you're playing in L.A. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, Mel
2: Counts. A couple of guys play for both, you know, for both franchises. It's different how one, one franchise uses them and the other franchise is like, yeah, you can come here and just be just be you. We're going to win and you're just a piece.
3: Sure. Sure. Um so moving on to uh our final finals the 1969 finals uh the uh, the Celtics win uh, four games to 3 Will Chamberlain joins the uh, Lakers um in the offseason and um uh, of course you know joining West and Baylor it's uh you know, consider a triumphant um acquisition by Jack Kent Cook and uh, they absolutely you know looking like the, the the favorites to dominate the league and finally uh, beat the uh, the Celtics um, Celtics really were a big underdog in this series they um, were on, only 48 and 34 they were the, the the fourth seed it was the first time the Lakers at home court advantage against the Celtics um, the uh, and and the you know it was a a um, it looked like it was going to be a big mismatch, but the Celtics managed to um, you know, upset the Sixers in the first round and, and, and beat the Knicks, who were about to be a rising power in the East. Um, yeah. So that's
2: the year where Russell had been in the league since 57, and Jones had been in the league since 67. So people are like, you know, <laughs> I know this is a prime bailer, but you got Weston Wilt, and then you got Sam and Russ. Havlicek's, you know, Havlicek's an all-star by then, or at least on the verge of becoming one uh, with with enough minutes. And, you know, on paper, you're like, really? Uh, Bill Russell in his 13th year and Sam Jones in his 13th year are going to beat these three guys?
3: Yeah, uh, and it's, uh, but the, the Celtics were kind of able to, they were able to rally uh, once more, even though, Um, you know, it was clear that Russell was waning a a bit, you know, um, Sam Jones had, had had some rough times during the season, but they were able to kind of pull it all together in the playoffs and, um, able to, um, able to pull through before we go through some of the big highlights of the series I just want to talk about, um, you know, the, the Lakers acquiring Wilt and how Mm -hmm. Wilt's personality, um, worked in the locker room, particularly with, um, with Elgin.
2: Okay, well, initially, uh, the Lakers had entertained the thought of bringing Chamberlain in since 65 in the deal where he went from San Francisco to Philly. They thought about it even then. Uh, Shouse asked Baylor what he thought about bringing in Wilt in 65, and he asked West, uh, which gives you a feel for the standing the West had uh, by that time. It was a five-year vet. And I don't, there's no transcript of exactly what they told Fred Schaus or what they told their uh, GM Lou Moes, but you get the impression that they discouraged it without saying that they thought that there was anything wrong with Will. just the, 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 the chemistry nature of it. Because at that point, he hadn't won. Elgin loved him. I mean, he was Elgin's best man. When they did bring him in, it's the unselfish Wilt. It's the shot blocker. It's the passer. It's the guy who's had the most assists in the league one year in Philly. It's the guy who had the best winning record of all time with the uh, 66, 67 uh, sixes of 68 and 13. It's not sort of the Wilt that needs to be a gun, uh, not to take anything from Wilt. So, (laughs) You're bringing in the strong man, and then you got to think about this: you're gonna you're gonna face the Russell Celtics in the finals. So it seemed like a good idea at the time. Let's get Wilt, and you know we've got Jerry. We'll get what we can get out of out of an an aging Baylor, obviously, and some other parts. And Russell will have to guard Wilt in the finals. They didn't. Russell and Baylor didn't really clash at first. What there was was in uh, in the offense, because Baylor likes to drive from the left lane to the right side, because he's right-handed, and come across the lane and swoop and score. They never had, when they had these guys like Counts and Leroy Ellis and Gene Wiley, those guys didn't need to really camp under under the basket for a lot of points, because they weren't the focus of the scoring didn't feed them very often. Wilt did. Uh Wilt posted up down there. He was right where where Elgin liked to drive. That was one issue. Uh, the egos were not really an issue, but it was more of it was it was not that Wilt was coming in wanting to be the leader of Weston Baylor's team, but it was just the way that the offense had to be run to accommodate Wilt because it was an older Baylor trying to get his shots driving across that same lane. And there was also just the fact that Wilt's not a big practice person. So it's, it's just dealing with everything that was Wilt.
3: Yeah. And the, um, the, the egos did come to play, however, with um, Wilt and, uh, and Van Bredlikoff, which we'll talk about uh, in a moment, but um. In, uh, the Lakers actually do win games one and two, uh, West scored 53 points in game one and 41 points in game two. Uh, Elgin scored 31 points in game two, including the, 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 the 12 final Lakers points in that game. Um, then Russell decides to, to gain, to double team West in game three. West at this point has, uh, is t- tired out, um, just from, uh, just be, being exhausted from scoring so much and from so much use um Havlicek scores 40, scores 42 in that game to um despite having a swollen eye after getting poked in the eye um the Celtics win game three uh game four very very close uh, game could have easily gone the other way and and changed the series but um uh, Sam Jones is able to hit an extremely ugly shot off the wrong foot uh that somehow um drops in and evens the series at uh at two to two uh basically um preventing the lakers from going down uh excuse me the celtics from going down three games to one uh in game five the lakers do win but uh west pulls his hamstring late in that game and is carried off the court uh he does return for game six but uh the celtics win russell helps shut down will to only scoring uh, eight points in uh, game six and then the final game it's it's very famous we have discussed it on this show previously uh but um <laughs> the uh the the celtics see the uh, balloons in the rafters uh, thousands of balloons uh and also a program that uh, shows the uh, celebration plan for when the lakers win the uh game and um and uh win the series uh Russell and the Celtics are, uh, definitely, uh, use some colorful words to, uh, in their thoughts on this and say, those balloons are staying in the ceiling. And then, uh, they go out and, uh, they, they win the game, but it is very close. Um, the Celtics actually have a big lead in the fourth quarter at one point, it's 98 81. And then the Lakers start to begin a furious comeback led by West, uh, midway through that with about five minutes left in the game. Chamberlain comes up hobbling on his knee. Um, he comes out of the game. The Lakers continue uh, rolling um, during that uh, time. And Mel Counts actually is a fairly big part of that comeback. And they are down just 103-102. Um, Will wants to come, come back in. But uh, Van Predlikoff says, no, we're doing fine without you. And um, Will ple- continues to plead in, to come in. But, but uh, he refused to do so then uh, Don nelson is uh gets an absurd uh gets a shot from the free throw line coming off a uh it was tipped from um Havlicek, I believe uh he he hits the jumper from the free throw line it bounces off the rim uh into the air and plops right into the uh the basket and the Celtics are able to uh pull it out from there in another heartbreaking fashion for the Lakers probably the the most heartbreaking fashion, um, I, I, I don't know. It'd be hard to rate based on um, all the other ones. I guess this one coming uh, coming at the end of this rivalry probably makes it the most heartbreaking because it's coming on top of what had happened before.
2: Yes. Uh, when, you've, when you've gone that far and you've had a possibility or a, a window or you're on the precipice with the selfie shot and things of that nature... Uh, That many times, and you know, especially for Baylor playing on two damaged knees, that your opportunities are running out. You are really trying to mitigate any predictable barriers to victory or any things that are intangibles that either Russell can take advantage of as a player coach or that the Celtics can take advantage of on the court. So anything like um, friction between coach and player, Van Bredikoff earlier in the season, telling Wilt to play uh, in a, in a way in which if, if you just uh, do what Russell does, uh, we'll win the title. And this is at a point in Wilt's career where he's basically focusing on defense and rebounding uh, to say things. And, 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 I think one of the big problems with Van Bredekoff-Chamberlain, and it even bleeds over into how Baylor and Westview will, is that Van Bredekoff-Chamberlain Bredikoff had their um, disputes out in the in the press. Yes. It wasn't limited to the locker room. One would say something about the other, like uh, Van Bredekoff would imply that Wilt is a little uh, unmotivated or maybe even use the, the L word that ends in Y. uh to a reporter, uh, then Wilt would say something about uh coach and he would say it to a reporter, not necessarily, and sort of maybe not even all to, all the times to each other's face, although there was a lot of that too, especially because Wilt wasn't a person that loved to get up and, and practice or thought much of practice, but neither did Russell. Russell hated practice, yes. but Auerbach was a different type of uh, coach in terms of his mental handling of players where he didn't force him to do something that he wasn't doing because they were winning. Um, So being played out in the press, the the press had a field day with it, uh, especially LA media, because it's a different era. There's no social media. There's no way to sort of glean or clear your conscience or to rectify or to say, I didn't say that between editions of the uh, Los Angeles times or the Los Angeles examiner or the nightly news. They didn't like each other. And he was playing a little bit more like Russell. Um, so it's it's not it's it's not the Chamberlain that the Philly and San Francisco coaches had complained about. Uh when he banged his knee and didn't go back in, the fallout of that is that Russell criticized him for it for decades. So that's the that's the long-term fallout that sort of entered the uh the the game's history. The immediate fallout was that we don't know whether Van Bredakoff literally didn't put him back in because of the beef between the two or didn't put him back in because he really did feel Counts was, was doing better because the best Counts is not Wilt. Uh, the other thing about it is Wilt is not guarding a guy that needs the ball to score a lot. So even though Wilt is playing more like Russell at that stage of his career, and he's actually younger than Russell, in the finals, Wilt isn't guarding a guy that takes a lot of shots. Now, it does. Wilt blocking shots and focusing on that later in his career does help you dissuade other people from coming in the lane and scoring, like a Havlicek, uh, like a Sam, and guys like that, Larry Siegfried. But it's interesting that Wilt focusing on becoming a defensive player would probably have been more important if they were playing a guy like, say, um, a Lou Alcindor or maybe later on a Dave Cowens, or maybe even more so than Russell or Willis Reed, but it's not quite as important with with Russell. So, you know, I don't like to come down just on Van Bredikoff's side with all of these things, but it also made Baylor and West uncomfortable because the writers would always ask them, since they were the leaders, what do you think about what Butch Van Bredikoff said, or what do you think about what Wilt said? (laughs) They would always have to... They were sort of peacemaker, not peacemakers, because they didn't even get into it. They didn't really get into it. They just wanted to get this monkey off their backs. And having Wilt was supposed to uh, get the monkey off their backs of uh, finally dethroning Boston. Didn't happen.
3: No. But they do finally win the championship, unfortunately, uh, after Baylor's retirement in uh, 72 um, against the uh, Knicks. So they, um, it it is a... So West,
2: West got a ring on the court.
3: Yes yes uh and, and wilt of course as well so um uh so so before the end they they do have a they, they aren't able to do it against the Celtics but they certainly um are a, a great accomplishment for them unfortunately Baylor having retired he was given a ring but but it was not a um but but he retired early in the season because of that uh after you know uh, just no longer being able to try to give it a go. Yes, yeah. exactly. So And they had
2: Jimmy they had Jim McMillan and he really he really felt, you know, <laughs> nine games in, this isn't fair. I mean yeah. it's not really fair.
3: Yeah. Um uh before we go, anything else you want to uh anything else we should talk about?
2: Well I just think it's uh important for people that are like, you know, I would say uh eighteen to forty to understand uh the dynamics of a 10 to 11 team league. Um, the fact that you knew the other players' moves, but that doesn't mean you could stop a Bob Petter or an Oscar Robertson or an Elgin Baylor just because you do what they were going to do. Uh, the um, The element of... I think those guys... Between 62 and 69, the Celtics and Lakers to the fans and media were the Dodgers and Yankees of the 50s and early 60s. Well, I say 50s because when they moved to Brooklyn, it's a different, it's a little different. They did play the Yankees, I think, in one World Series after they moved to L.A. But it's it's sort of the Dodgers and the Yanks. But it became a little bit too much like the Dodgers and the Yanks in one sense. If you throw out that uh, Johnny Padres year in 1955. So the rivalry did become this um, see, this annual ritual to basketball fans and press. And it was a perfect ritual. It, it kind of prefaced the ritual of the 80s because one team was from the East Coast and one team was from 3,000 miles away. Then you have Auerbach, but, you know, you have a succession of coaches, mostly Shouts on the L.A. side. You had L.A., which is Tinseltown, and... West and West taking these long jump shots or driving to the hoop and Baylor with his uh, inimitable style as much as Dr. J and, and, and people like that tried to assimilate that style. He was the first anyone saw do it. And the purple and gold uniforms or before that, the purple and white uniforms and playing in the sports arena in the forum, juxtaposed with the old Boston Garden with the dead spots on the parquet floor and the too cold locker room with the temperature turned down. So... It was it was a beautiful rivalry in, in the um, con, in the sense of the contrast, and it prefaced, uh, as I stated, the rivalry that we would get with uh, Bird and Magic. So it was it was almost exactly you know the working class and the black guy, the white guy, the the guy that was twenty five years old when he left college and the guy that was nineteen year old when he left college. They're both six nine and they can both pass. Right. So uh, that 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 set up the stage for the people that were old enough to have seen both to get into the subsequent Boston, uh, LA rivalry. And I think again, it's important for people to know that I don't, I don't know about the fans so much because they only met on that stage once a year, but Philly and Boston was also a rivalry too, because they always had to get through Philly in the East. And those were series when fans threw things at the teams and there was a lot of, uh, booing and Boston is dead chance and things of that nature and Philly getting over the hump in 66-67, ironically with Wilt, that at least for the players and um, the observers, it it, it was something of, there was a drama uh, every year in the NBA finals of these Boston-LA series where Boston, Boston's superstar was sort of a defensive player. And then LA had these two, you know, twin offensive scoring machines in Baylor and West. So it was, it was really like, can the best, and this is how the media sort of uh, posed it to the general public. Can the best team beat the best players? And every year that Baylor was active, the best team beat the best players.
3: Uh, I That's a great way of putting it. Um...
2: Although in retrospect, everybody on that team that was more balanced, ends up in the hall of fame yeah
3: that that which yeah i i think people i i mean obviously the celtics did play incredibly well as a team and and then they you know that teamwork was a lot but i mean they had some incredible players too i mean they couldn't have been an incredible team without having incredible players they just had guys who um just worked so well together for so many years and obviously mm-hmm. russell being the, the the most important piece in that but a lot of guys who were really important pieces and in that and the, what the Lakers had was great, but it just wasn't quite as great as what the Celtics had so many times.
2: There's two things that you don't want to be if you're in the NBA you don't want to be born around 1934, 35, or 36, and you don't want to be born around 1963 or 64. Yeah, if you want a championship, <laughs> if, if you were born in 34, 35, 36, you have a great career, do all kinds of things, set records, score 100 points in a game. Uh, well, Wilt won two championships, so we'll take him out of that, but sure. in terms of <laughs> Being born at the wrong time, I would say if if, if you're a certain people, um, you don't want to be born. You don't want to be a contemporary of Bill Russell and you don't want to be a contemporary of Michael Jeffrey Jordan.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well said. Um, so everyone should definitely check out um, Elgin Baylor, the man who changed basketball. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about or where they can follow you on Twitter or or what have you?
2: Yeah, sure. On Twitter, it's at Bijan C. Bain, uh, the spelling of my name, B-I-J-A-N uh, C. Bain, middle initial C. And I really want to thank you guys for having me on. This is, an important, this is an important series. And as I stated, you really don't appreciate Russell because I didn't see him. I came, my fan, my fandom started the year after he left. <laughs> I saw Hank Finkel and, and John Havlicek. <laughs> Uh, so I saw Alcindor's rookie year, but you really don't think about what he accomplished until you really factor in his focus on a statistic that wasn't even being tallied while he was playing. That that That's really something. Yeah, It would it be is. like, it would be like being a monumental, I can't even say goalie with saves because you're always going to count saves, but it, but it would be like, I don't know. I don't know if, you know, put outs at a certain position in baseball or, you know, if we didn't have a way of logging uh, uh, fumble recoveries, I, I, there's, there's really no analog in major sports history. And I, as much as his psychological presence is appreciated and his physical gifts, the combination of the two, it's hard, it, it's, it's astounding that with all the shot blockers that we've had since, you know, whether they be the Olajuwon's, whether they be the Mark Eatons, whether they be David Robinson that that formula hasn't been able to be replicated where a person could dominate the game for that long without having to have the ball in their hands i mean Robinson and Duncan and all those guys are scores
3: yeah I, I absolutely and um yeah, I and mean, basically to invent the way the defense is played i mean really i mean that's what he did um i mean basically uh just kind of re- revolutionized the entire way that defense was played and um to um and to be such a you know a, a pioneer and to um be able to um you know lead the way for um for other black athletes to um you know make their mark in the nba and the you know and of course that being important in a um you know, for sports reasons and for cultural reasons and for, you know, for, for all kinds of reasons. So he really is on both the the basketball side of things and uh, the winning side of things and the, you know, cultural side of things. He's, he's such an important figure. And I, I'm glad we can do this series to help highlight some of those things, which, you know, which I've learned about since doing this research and, and gained a new appreciation for.
2: No, you, you, you've really done your homework. I, I, I think the only credible analog is deacon jones getting six getting 26 sacks in 1967 when the nfl didn't count sacks yes and deacon jones naming them sacks
3: that that, that is that's good yes that would probably be that, that, that would probably be the closest thing that i could think of that absolutely is uh the case so uh so thank you sir for well, uh, I, go ahead
2: I, re- I really appreciate you having me on and i really appreciate the uh informed uh nature of the questions
3: Well, thank you. Uh, And thanks everyone for uh, checking us out. You can find us at hardwoodparoxysm.com. We are on uh, iTunes and Stitcher. You can search for Over and Back. Please uh, leave a rating and a review if you enjoy the podcast. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So uh, thanks for listening. And uh, until next time, we'll be back again soon.